Heavenly Father, we're deeply humbled that we can be here this afternoon, that we can open up the Word of God, we can learn from the Bible. Lord, as we hear about and meet Mary, would you teach us what child is this? And would you transform our lives for your glory and for our joy? Amen. We're in an account by a writer named Luke. And Luke is a doctor. He's a physician. He's also a Gentile. And if you're a Gentile, it means you're non-Jewish. Non-Jewish people are Gentiles. And there's several books in what we call the New Testament, the second part of the Bible. And every writer in the New Testament is either Jewish or Jewish who became Christian or, sorry, they're all Jewish. They're all of Jewish descent. Every writer in the, in the New Testament is of Jewish descent, except for Luke. He's the only non-Jewish person to write what we call a gospel account that takes into account what Jesus did, said, how people reacted. This is a gospel, so we're in the gospel of Luke. And he's writing to other Gentiles, other non-Jewish people. He says he wasn't an eyewitness of what happened. But he recorded, he says, everything carefully from the beginning and writing it out in consecutive order. He says that in the first chapter, in verse number three. So what is the purpose of Luke? Why is he writing this book written over 2,000 years ago? He wrote it for this purpose. To create a historically accurate account that's both chronological and accurate, of the life of Jesus Christ. And he would carefully present the facts of what happened. So Luke wrote the book of Luke. And he also wrote a book called Acts. So what the early followers did, how they acted, the miracles they did, the teachings they taught. So when you read Luke and Acts together, It explains the beginnings of Christianity. And his intended audience were non-Jewish people, Gentiles. The beginnings of Christianity could be traced directly to Jesus. This is what Luke is writing about. And as he's telling the story of Jesus, he's emphasizing Jesus' work, his ministry to, and his compassion for those who are outcast in society. The Gentiles, these people called Samaritans, women, children, tax collectors, sinners, the poor. Jesus focuses on the outcast. And here we pick it up in Luke chapter 1. We're reading verses 26 to 35. If you don't have a Bible, there might be a Bible near you. That's a gift to you from the Northern Collective. We're in chapter 1. Verses 26 to 35, and this is what it says. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. 
The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, But how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. So welcome to a small and corrupt farming village named Nazareth. This is where Mary's from. We're in Nazareth. It's full of Roman soldiers who are kind of policing this small village. And most of the people living there were non-Jewish. They were Gentiles. And this small, corrupt town, nobody thought anything could good can come of it. In fact, somebody said in uh, a book called John, chapter 1, verses uh, 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Maybe Canada thinks that about Whitehorse. Can anything good... <laughs> Come out of Whitehorse, this nothing, nowhere town. Dylan Cousins. Dylan Cousins. Go Canada. Here in Nazareth, we meet this teenager named Mary in this nothing, nowhere town. And during this time, if you were a poor peasant girl, you probably couldn't read or write. You'd have very limited knowledge of the scriptures, so the Old Testament, uh, you'd have knowledge from memorizing verses with your parents or going to the Jewish synagogue. And you'd basically live a very humble and ordinary life. Poor peasant girls, they probably have a few kids, probably never travel far from home, and then die, just like thousands of others before her. A writer wrote this, Mary was a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. This is Mary. But there are more poems, songs, statues, sermons, books about Mary, this Mary, than any other woman in history. I would hazard to say there's more stuff written about Mary and statues and songs and poems than all women in history combined. Mary, who is this Mary? The Bible, it calls her blessed. But she should not be prayed to. Nor should we give any devotion to her as part of being a Christian. The headquarters of the Roman Catholic Church, which is the Vatican, they wrote this. The church's devotion to the Blessed Virgin is intrinsic to Christian worship. The church's devotion to the Blessed Virgin is intrinsic to Christian worship. Christian worship is basically saying if you are a Christian, you must devote your life in some aspect to Mary. Pray to her. Give her not sacrifices, but devotion and and things beyond just a regular person. So this idea it actually originates 
from one of the early translations of the Bible that the Catholic Church did. It's called the Latin Vulgate. V-U-L-G-A-T-E. And in this translation that the Catholic Church uses as one of their primary translations, it says, Mary is, quote, full of grace, but in Latin, full of grace. But there's a Catholic scholar named Raymond Brown. He's a scholar of the New Testament. It says that Mary, that saying Mary is full of grace in the Latin Vulgate is too strong of a translation. If Luke wanted to use this phrase, he would use it because he used it to talk about Stephen, the first Christian to be killed for his faith in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. That was in his vocabulary. Luke could have said Mary was full of grace, but Luke didn't say that. So the Latin Vulgate's mistranslation gave rise to the idea that Mary could distribute grace to people and that she should be prayed to. And on December 8th, 1854, the Pope at the time, his name is Pope Pius IX, he had the longest reign of any Pope in history of 31 years, he declared and created essentially this, this doctrine, this belief in the Catholic Church called Immaculate Conception. Immaculate Conception. And this is the teaching. Quote, from the first moment of her conception, the Blessed Virgin Mary was, by the singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and in view of the Savior of mankind, kept free from the stain of original sin. So this teaching is saying that Mary was free from sin. Nowhere is that teaching found in the Bible. Nowhere. In fact, we have all sinned. We have all rebelled against God, including Mary. We get this from a book called Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This includes Mary. She was not sinless. Because Mary, like so many of us, is a nobody from a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. And God often meets nobodies. If you read the Bible, you'll notice that God encounters those who are poor and humble over and over again. God encounters the poor and the humble. Isaiah chapter 61, verse, verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has chosen me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed and announce that the time has come when the Lord will save His people. James 4, 6 
and He gives grace generously. As the Scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God often encounters the poor and the humble. To get to Mary, God bypassed the Jewish center, Judea. He passed Jerusalem where the temple was and found a nothing village and a humble woman. And an angel appears to Mary. And not just any angel. He's given a name. He has a name. His name is Gabriel. The only other angel that is named in the Bible is Michael. We'll talk about that after. The angel's given a name. So it wasn't just random angel 7452, go see Mary. Gabriel. I have some serious news God is saying to Gabriel. You need to go and talk to Mary and deliver this shocking message. Gabriel says to Mary, you are going to give birth to the Son of God and he will be an everlasting king. For you have found favor with God. Verse 30. And in this moment in history, Luke is recording. He's a physician, by the way. And this is a crazy account. This is a crazy account. This miracle. And through Mary, God is going to accomplish the impossible. She's going to conceive a child, though she is a virgin. And Mary... How did she react to this news? Angel shows up. And when an angel shows up, if you've been in church, if you've read the Bible, what's one of the first things that angels always say when they pop into someone's life? Don't be afraid. afraid. Why would they say that? First of all, they're just crazy scary probably. They're just bright. They probably think they're gods and they just show up and you're you're like, don't be afraid. But another reason is usually when angels show up, it's because the judgment of death has come. And so the angel shows up and be like, oh, I'm going to die. I'm scared. You're crazy looking and I'm getting judged. And the angel says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Gabriel says to Mary. You're going to give birth to the Son of God. And Mary doesn't say, hey, that's a pretty good idea. But what about Elizabeth? Well, she's already pregnant, but, okay, what about this other girl? Like, why, why me? No, she doesn't do that. She humbly submits to the will of God. She humbly submits to the will of God. And Mary is a good example of how Christians should act. She surrendered her life to God. She placed her life in His hands and in His plans. She humbly submitted to the will of God. That is... For you as well. If you're a Christian, you are to submit your life to God. That's how, that's how we're taught to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, it says, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do we pray that? Do we do that? Your will be done, God. I want to build your kingdom, your fame. Or are we building our own? My will be done. Do we pray, Lord, 
I'm about to do this thing. Bless it. Or do we say, Lord, what are you doing? How can I do your will? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And she's up for the task. The Lord found favor with her. We don't know why. But she took the job. And she cared for her son. She cared for baby Jesus. She cared for her son and her Savior until his dying breath. We read in another gospel account, John chapter 19, verse 25. As Jesus grows up, grows through life, learning, teaching, telling others he's the Son of God, the kingdom of God is near, and he's about to be executed for this teaching. At the age, young age of 30, 33, he goes to the cross to be executed. He's innocent. He's humiliated as he walks through the street carrying this wooden cross with his back already ripped from whips, dehydrated, bloodied. He's walking the streets to go up a hill to die. And it says in John chapter 19, verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and others. His mother was there. He didn't, she didn't abandon him when things were getting tough. This is one of the most powerful scenes of compassion and care that we see. Not only for Mary, but Jesus' compassion towards her. This nobody from nowhere. When Jesus is dying on the cross, arms stretched wide, Mary is near, comforting her son, weeping, an unimaginable, solemn weep. Yet, we see the compassion from Jesus at that same moment. We continue in John chapter 19, verse 26 to 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, Behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. What an incredible picture of love and compassion that Jesus displayed towards his mother. While he hung there dying, he wanted his mother to be cared for. He had the capacity and the love and the deep humility and compassion to make sure that his mother was taken care of. This nobody, this nothing, this outcast. But we are not just nobodies. We are made in God's image. God made each one of us with value because he breathed life into us. And what child is this? Who is this Jesus? 
Luke, Dr. Luke is giving us this beautiful portrait of a compassionate Savior that he cares, that he cares deeply about not only his mother, but for each one of us. That Jesus Christ was was the Savior of the world. That God so loved the world that He sent His Son that anyone who believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. He is a compassionate Savior and He is not indifferent to our suffering. He is with us in the dark when we are confused and lost and we have no idea what's going on. He is there. He is a compassionate Savior. He is not indifferent to us in our suffering. Who is this child? What child is this? He would be the one who loved others and loved his family to the very end. He was selfless and sacrificing beyond measure. He was kind and considerate even when experiencing his worst day in the worst way. He was the one who came willingly to go through the worst so that we too might be made family and have provision through his death because of his life. For not only was the child the one who was born in the manger in Bethlehem, but also he would be the firstborn from the dead. And his rebirth gives all people the opportunity to be born again and saved from our sins, just as Mary came to understand. Jesus Christ, he was born He was born, he was born to die, but he did not stay dead. That is the beauty of the gospel. And he's saying that if you believe in me, the grave cannot hold you. If you believe in me, hell has no sting. I will rise from the dead to show that death has no grip on you. You will never taste death. Believe that, dear nobody. And what do we do now? There's a song that says this. I forget the song. But it says, we are nobodies. Telling everybody about somebody. I do care about the Northern Collective Church. But not as much as I care for Christ and Christ cares for me. I want you to know him. I want you to know Jesus. We are nobodies telling everybody about somebody. And his compassion for you is limitless. It is amazing. It is good. And it is free. By faith alone you receive this. The Lord, he comes to needy people. Those who realize they can't make it. Those who acknowledge their weakness and spiritual lack. This is who Christ came for. When you're too proud... And you think, I can do this. I can do this on my own. I don't need you, God. God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. This is the story of the birth of Christ. This is the story of Christmas. This event changed history. It's the story that is for the humble and poor in spirit, not the proud and self-sufficient.
Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price for you to adopt you into his family at every cost to himself. I heard a preacher put it this way. His name is Dr. John Piper. And he's looking at us. We've gone our own ways. We've rebelled against the perfectly good, holy God. And we are lost, utterly lost. We're disconnected with God. We're disconnected with ourselves. We're disconnected with each other. And the wages of sin is death. And we are done. But God, looking down on us, looking upon us, John Piper says, I will do anything to have them in my family. I will do whatever it takes. And it came at the cost of his own son to adopt you, to adopt me. What is that? What child is this that he would do that? He is the son of God. Come to earth through a humble woman to save us, to rescue us. How then shall we live? One application. One. By receiving this news, we do it through humble faith expressed through trust. We do it through humble faith expressed through trust. What do I mean by this? If you're a Christian here, I'm addressing Christians. We do this, we express our trust in Christ by doing what he says. It doesn't sound revolutionary or new, but I get this from a book called John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, if you love me, you will do what I say. If you love me, you will do what I say. If you say you love Jesus, you will do what he says. Now, make sure you take note of this. Jesus doesn't love you because you obey, okay? Jesus doesn't love you because you obey. You obey because you love Jesus. If you love someone, you do things that express that love. If you love Jesus, John is saying, you will do what he says. And it's not a begrudging like, I have to do this. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it's hard for me to pray. Sometimes it's hard for me to teach my kids the Bible when they just want to run around and eat chips at nine in the morning. (laughs) Sometimes I don't want to be here and teach this. But God gives grace to the humble. And I say, Lord, help me. I want to do these things and help me to want to do these things. And maybe that's the simplicity of the prayer for you. Maybe you haven't picked up the Bible in years. Maybe you haven't told anyone about your faith ever or in a long time. But Jesus says, I know that. I know who you are. And I still love you. We obey because he first loved us. 
And if this is your first time hearing this, if this is your first time hearing this message about the birth of Jesus, or maybe it's the hundredth time, but you just haven't committed your life to him, he is saying, I welcome you with outstretched arms. 2,000 years ago, it's an undeniable fact that I died for you. That I died for you. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That was before you were born. That was before you thought you were awesome. Christ died for you. And if we put our trust in that, you are saved. You are part of a family to a king with a kingdom that will have no end. You are part of that family. And we celebrate that in this, in this side of heaven by taking what, what, the, what we call communion, what, what Jesus instated in the Bible, is that we take these symbols of Christ's blood and his body in the form of juice and bread. And we do that to not only remember his sacrifice, that we're joining a global family in this, in this celebration. Not only are we remembering, but we're celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. Right now we're in the first advent, but Jesus says, I'm coming back. I'm coming back for my family. I'm coming back for those who put their faith in me. Have you done that? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Do you do what he says? What child is this? He's the Son of God, the Savior of the world, saving nobodies. Amen. Please pray with me before we get to the communion table. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have come into history, that you've entered our story, and that you've come to save us. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for Mary and her obedience and her humility. And would we take that as an example? Not elevating her above an ordinary image bearer, but we're thankful for the Blessed Virgin Mary. Amen.